Well, this week I want to start off a little bit differently than we normally would start off. In light of the recent events around the world that we're seeing, brothers and sisters in Christ living literally in persecution and martyrdom, uh, I want to read to you a psalm of Psalm 46 as an encouragement in a world that often feels out of control in the season that we're living in. Psalm 46 says, There is a river whose streams make the glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so in a world that often feels it is out of control and getting worse, uh, Psalm 46 is a true to anchor our hearts and minds on this morning that realizes that when it comes to wars, Psalm 46 says, God says, I can shut them down in an instant. I can desolate the enemies. I can even burn their transportation. That with a brief utterance, I can end anything that I want, that God is sovereign over the nations. Despite what you see on the news, God is sovereign over the nations, as Psalm 46 says. And so today, before we begin walking through Romans chapter 8 uh, t- together, on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan, uh, let's call on that same God described in Psalm 46, because while he is sovereign, he does delight in our dependent prayers. And so would you pray with me this morning? Father, we're living in a time that if we're not careful, fear can be debilitating. And Lord, there's times for appropriate concern and worry, but God, uh, I pray that uh, coming alongside of those realities, God, we would be anchored, not in wishful thinking, we'd be anchored in the revealed truth that you're sovereign over the nations. And so, Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan. More than what binds us together, our citizenship on earth, is our citizenship in heaven. And God, we should be just as grieved for those in the persecuted church in Afghanistan right now as we are as if our own neighbor were walking through a difficult season. God, we pray for your mercy would be poured out on them. We pray for divine intervention. We pray that you would make yourself strong. And God, in the midst of the waiting, God, that your grace would be sufficient. We pray for uh, victory over the enemies. We pray for providential protection for those who are fearful. And God, may their example of courage in the face of persecution be the wind in our sails as we realize and count the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ in a world that is set against them. So God, we pray for them. We intercede for them, believing all the truths about you that you've declared in Psalm 46. God, meet them in their time of desperation as you promised to do in ways that we don't even understand or could predict. And so, God, we declare all these truths in the name of our sovereign God. The church of Jesus Christ together said, amen. Not only is God sovereign over the nations, uh, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over our salvation. Uh, He promises that every person whom he justifies, he will, past tense, guaranteed outcome, glorified. That is such a guarantee that the late, great Adrian Rogers used to have a phrase he would say about the assurance of salvation. He would say, the faith that fizzles out before the finish had a fatal flaw from the foundation. Say that ten times, can you? 
right? Isn't that a great statement? The faith that fizzles out before the finish line had a fatal flaw from the foundation. And so Romans chapter 8 has been a message of encouragement, uh, and I hope it's been encouraging to you as we walk through these truths. It's a reminder that this life is not apart from struggle, but that God has promised not just to meet us in our struggles, but to step into our struggles is what we've been learning in Romans chapter 8. And because that's true, uh, there is no condemnation, there is no separation, and there is no defeat. I don't know if you ever heard it put like that before. Can I say that together this week? Romans chapter 8 starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in the middle, the message is no defeat. And so we've been learning that over and over. And this week, uh, we're going to look at kind of the bridge between the middle section of no defeat and the end section of no separation. Next week in verses 35 through 39, we'll wrap up the series and land squarely on that truth of no separation. And so this morning, you've got your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using. Uh, turn with me once again to the book of Romans chapter 8 as we continue our series titled The Greatest Chapter. Now, last week, we didn't spend a tremendous amount of time on verses 29 through 30. And so we try to preach about 35 minutes here is kind of what we're planning for. And last week, I got a little carried away. Uh, someone said, what happened last week? How long did you preach? I said, I don't know. Like the Apostle John, I got caught up in the third heaven, right? And so... So it was a little longer than that, and so Pastor Kyle, who seems really nice, is really legalistic about that, and so he said, in order to average 35 minutes over the last two weeks, you've got seven minutes this morning to get the average down, is what he's got, so. But last week, we kind of got to the end and ran out of time, even though we went over, and because so much of what we're going to teach today and next week in verses 31 through 39 is anchored in verses 29 through 30 that we had to skim through last week, We're going to start off back in verse 29 together and look down through verse 34 today in a message titled, The Just Shall Live by Faith. Verse 29, chapter 8 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the saved. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so I want to walk you through this passage this morning, verses 29 through 34, and uh, three truths or three promises uh, when dealing with spiritual doubts. And the first truth that I want to anchor our minds on today is simply this, is that because of what's written in Romans chapter 8, you and I can put spiritual anxiety to bed. We don't have to live with this wondering, do I belong to Christ? Am I going to make it to heaven? You and I can put spiritual anxiety to bed once and for all. Now, I know that it's not uh, Christmas time. We're a long ways away from Christmas time. But who in here has ever played the game White Elephant? How many of you, that's a family tradition? Oh, lots of you. Lots of you. Now, here's what I learned this week. Uh, Depending on uh, what family you are, you've kind of played that game a little different. Each family's got their own rules. And here's what else I learned. Different parts of the country call that game different things. I, I didn't know that. And so as all of our pastors are working on the message together this week, Pastor Tyler, who's from Oklahoma, which is a prayer request, all right? Pastor Tyler said, hey, have you guys ever played? 
I can't even say it. He said, have you guys ever played that game, Dirty Santa? And I said, Tyler, I have lots of questions about the Price family traditions. I don't even know. I assured him that the Christian name for that game is White Elephant. Amen? It's in the Bible, all right? And so that game, if you've never played that, can be a tremendous amount of fun. And so, uh, you know, people grab a present. If you've never played it, they grab a present that's already wrapped. And you get this present, and uh, what you do is it seems like, hey, I'm the first one. I get to pick whatever I want. But actually, you want to be the last one because there's some stealing that goes on at the end of that game. And so some families, what I learned this week is it can only be stolen once. For some families, it can be stolen as many times as your name gets drawn out of the hat. So for some, it's the greatest game of all. For others, it's the worst game of all. This is a true story. Several years ago, uh, we were playing this at Tasha's family, and some of her extended family were there, and one of her elderly extended family members got furious because someone stole their gift at the end. Furious, right? And uh, here's what's funny about that. The gifts are garbage, amen? Like, it is a festival of rewraps and regifting. Let's just be honest, all right? But what if it was something that actually had tremendous value? What if it was something you actually desperately needed? Last week, we looked at Romans 8, 29, and 30 and dealt with this question, is salvation a gift that, in fact, you can receive but may be able to lose again, that you could forfeit or someone could snatch it away? And so here's what I want you to understand as we dive back into this thought this week, is that if you can lose your salvation, then it doesn't change the truth of just verses 29 and 30. It changes the entire truth of Romans chapter 8. That everything we've taught for the last six weeks, and we'll teach today, is no longer surely an anchor for our soul in troublesome times. Let me just walk you through this. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, what do we learn? That once you're in Christ, you can never be condemned again. But if you can lose your salvation, you in fact can be condemned spiritually once again. So that's no longer true. Uh, Verses 2 through 4 specifically said, hey, you're no longer hopeless. That Christ is at work in you, but that's only true if in fact your salvation is not conditional. In verses 5 through 11, we talked about the incredible opportunity to appropriate all that the Holy Spirit offers us in Him, but if I lose my salvation, guess what else I lose? The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. If salvation can be lost, there will be, in fact, times where the Spirit of God is not praying on your behalf that we learned about last week in verses 26 through 27. And so all of the truth in Romans chapter 8 hinders on whether or not you, in fact, our salvation is secure. Listen, if salvation could be lost... Romans chapter 8 is not a chapter on spiritual comfort. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter riddled with spiritual anxiety. Because what it means, and if I can lose my salvation, the meaning of Romans chapter 8 is changed to these things are all available to those who perform really well. Now here's the problem with that. And why that should produce anxiety. Because I know me very well. And you know what I know about me? I don't perform well. I'm frail, I'm spiritually fragile, I'm terribly inconsistent. And so when we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, the good news is you and I can put that spiritual anxiety to bed because God clearly is making this truth that he is the author, guarantor, and executor of our salvation, and that is true from beginning to the end. All right, so if you're listening, say amen. 
biblical faith is moving forward based on what God has revealed in his word to, in fact, be true, even and especially when it does not feel true. It's living on revelation despite your doubts, not in the absence of them. Listen, if there were no doubts, if there were no times of wondering or seasons of suffering, then we wouldn't need to exercise faith, would we? But in fact, what we're doing is in the midst of doubt, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of spiritual anxiety, what you're saying is, hey, I'm choosing to live by faith because even though this feels true in this scary moment, this is what God has revealed to be true, and so by faith, I'm going to anchor my hope in what has been revealed to be true in an act of biblical faith and not succumb to what I'm afraid might be true in this moment of suffering. That's what he's teaching here. Biblical faith is anchored to revealed truth. And the revealed truth about our salvation, verses 29 through 30, look at it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, many among the brothers. Listen to this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, listen, past tense. We believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. And so even the grammar of this language has theological meaning. And so those whom he justified, he's declared guilty but pardoned. Those whom he justified, he also glorified past tense with future implications in the promise of God. And so we openly acknowledge last week, hey, in these verses here, there's some mystery. What did God foreknow? What, what, did, you know, what, what does it mean? When, can, a, can a person resist God's call? Listen, for 2,000 years, there have been people debating these divine mysteries. But what we settled on last week is that, yes, while there's some divine mystery, by faith, we can live in what is clear, even though there's some questions about not what isn't so clear. And what is clear in verses 29 through 30 is that everyone who is truly saved or justified will be guaranteed by God, glorified in heaven one day, done deal, past promise. That's what he's saying. Look at the pattern he lays out here. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Predestined what? According to verse 29, he predestined that every person who's saved will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Those whom he foreknew, what's his foreknowledge based on? I don't know, that's why he's God and I'm not. But those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called them, he justified them, and he glorified them. Now, what's implied in the text, what we learn from studying Scripture, is that in between justification and glorification is the process of sanctification where I am slowly but gradually becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. But here's what I want you to understand out of the truth of verse 30. These five things are listed as unalterable sequential steps. And God making us just like Jesus. None of them are presented as conditional. None of them. All of them are shown that once they're in motion, God himself will guarantee the outcome. And so if you're a person who's truly received Christ, listen, hear me this morning, all right? You should have no spiritual anxiety that, in fact, you may not make it home one day. Because God has promised that I'm the initiator, executor, and guarantor of the whole process of you one day becoming just like Jesus Christ. So here's the good news. If you're in Christ, you can lay your head down at night and sleep well despite what's going on around you. Because no matter how bad it gets, one day you'll be with the Father guaranteed in heaven, whole and healed. That's what Scripture's teaching. 
In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul echoed this statement. Listen to what he said. He said, I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, what's the good work? The work of justification. He who began a good work in you will, not might, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter one, verse six, who began the good work? You or God? God did. Who's the one bringing it to completion? You or God? God is the one who's bringing it to completion. That's all over the Bible. Romans chapter five, Romans chapter 10. We go on and on. We're gonna drill that deep, deep, deep next week. And so if this is so clear theologically, if all those steps in the process of me becoming just like Jesus in glorification are guaranteed by God, he's the one carrying it out, then why in the world, if this is so clear theologically, why is it so difficult to flesh out in real life? Why is it that I battle all this spiritual anxiety if these things are so clear in Scripture? Let me give you two common sources of spiritual anxiety. Source number one is seasons of suffering. We've dealt with that extensively in verse 18 through 30, so I'm not going to reteach all we've taught in the last couple of weeks. But here's the thing. If suffering is so bad and prolonged, there will be a temptation for you at times to wonder, do I even belong to the Father? Because if I did, surely he wouldn't allow me to walk through such a hard season. What we learned in verse 28, he said, hey, all things work together. They're not because they're good. All things work together for good. And so seasons of suffering can cause spiritual anxiety. But the other thing that can cause spiritual anxiety is inconsistent spiritual performance. Man, if I was really saved, I just thought I'd be further along by now. I just thought I'd have more victory over these patterns of sin that I keep falling into. I just thought prayer would come more natural. I just thought I would get up in the morning and just get excited to get to the Word of God. And and I just thought I'd be further along spiritually. Now, let me just tell you this. According to the truth of verses 29 through 30. Here's the truth. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Right? You would. If it were up to you, if you could lose it, like it'd be like a set of car keys or a cell phone. Am I right? Like, have you seen my salvation? It fell off somewhere. I don't know where it's at. Maybe you left it on top of the car. You've been yelling on the whole way to church. Maybe it fell off in the driveway. Amen? But this passage clearly says God does the calling. This passage clearly says God does the justifying. This passage implies throughout the rest of Scripture, God himself does the sanctifying. This passage clearly teaches that God himself is the one who will glorify. Philippians 1 clearly teaches that God is the one who not only began the work in you, he is also the one who will complete the work in you. And none of those truths are presented conditionally based on your performance now let's just be honest when you teach that if you came from a background that taught you could lose your salvation which is called conditional security it makes you a little nervous when people say that right and if you came from that background listen you believe that listen that's totally fine you're welcome here you're totally free to be wrong all right I just want to say that in a kind way all right but here's what the conversation I had this a few months ago with a person They believed in conditional security. And they just said, well, what you're teaching then is that someone could truly be saved and live like the devil, but yet one day they'll spend eternity with the Father. And I said, no, 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 the Bible clearly teaches that those who live like the devil do so because he, in fact, is their true father is what Scripture says. 
And so this is not a promise for everyone that's made a profession of faith and, you know, walked down an aisle and cried and, you know, whatever the case is, threw a stick in the fire at youth camp or whatever the case is. He says, no, no, for every single person who's truly been converted and gives evidence of a pattern of obedience of Christ at work in them, here is the promise guaranteed outcome. One day, you will in fact become just like Jesus and God is the initiator, author, and executor of all of that process. You don't have to live with spiritual anxiety. Praise God. That's a promise that we live in the revealed, and there are times where you think, gosh, how can a saved person go through so much suffering in our lives. And that will feel to be true when suffering is so hard and so prolonged. But what what we live is in the revealed truth of God's word. He says, no, no, every person who's justified will be glorified. Every person who receives Jesus will make it home. And so truth number one that we anchor our hearts to is that, is you and I can put spiritual anxiety to bed. Now that's great about our eternal future, right? But what about the here and now? What about the life that I'm living in? Well, this text also teaches that by faith, you and I can move forward in gospel confidence. No matter what's going on around us, you and I can move forward in gospel confidence. Look at verse 31 again. In verse 31, it reads this. and says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, what are these things that he's being referred to? He's referring to all the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. He says, well, then how do we reconcile these incredible truths that nothing can separate us from the love of God in light of the things we just talked about, specifically in verses 18 through 30, about this incredible suffering that's going on? He's talking about the trials, the persecutions, the suffering of life, the difficulties in a fallen world. He says, what do we say about these things? How do we reconcile the truth of a God who's for us and loves us, and yet all these things are true that we've just been talking about what do we say when the trials of a fallen world feel like they're caving in the walls of our lives and so guess what these people in Romans chapter 8 that he's writing to they must have been wrestling with the same things you and I wrestle with they must have been trying to reconcile how do I reconcile the truth of a good and sovereign and faithful God with the life that's filled with hardship and heartache and suffering and so what's the answer to the question how do we make sense of all these things well listen the second half of verse 31 gives us the answer in the form of a rhetorical question. And here's what he says. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And what he's saying there, he's saying, hey, listen, no matter how hard life gets, and it can get incredibly hard on this side of eternity, he's saying the cross is a tangible reminder that God says, hey, even when you had set your affections against me, I was still for you to the point I was willing to sacrifice everything on behalf of you to display my love. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what he's saying is, hey, I, I'm not minimizing the suffering He's saying, but by faith, you and I can look at the cross and say, hey, no matter when I struggle with doubts, no matter when life gets hard, I can look at the cross and say, that has settled the case once and for all, that God is in fact for me, and therefore, nothing or no one can come against me, is what he says. All of redemptive history, we read the pages of a God who is for his covenant people. All over the Old Testament, Joseph was sold into slavery falsely accused and imprisoned. God only not brought him comfort. He used him to preserve the nation of Israel. 
And remember what Joseph said in that incredible line in Genesis chapter 50? His brothers come against him, and they recognize, oh my goodness, this is Joseph, the one we put into a pit. This is Joseph who we put his coat of many colors on eBay, you know? Handmade by Dolly Parton, right? Like, I don't know what that means. You're not going to heaven then, okay? What's Joseph say? They think, he's going to kill us. He says, it's fine. What you meant for evil, God's used it for good. Genesis chapter 50. We see when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, it says that God sought out Moses and said this, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. And so over and over, God is advocating on behalf of his people. Over and over, all throughout the Old Testament, God would send them a warrior, a king, or a prophet to intercede for them and bring them back into himself. And what we find out is this, is not only is God interceding on behalf of his people, but actually Jesus is interceding on our behalf as well. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, it's not that you and I will never come against hard times. Listen, he just spent 18 through 30 talking about all these hard times. What he's saying in verses 31 is this, is that in the midst of those hard times, by faith, you can look at the work of the cross and say, hey, that settled the question once and for all that God is in fact for his covenant people, that God is advocating on our behalf against every single enemy. By faith is what he says. If God is on our side, it doesn't matter what the opposition is. Now, so how should we view opposition and trials? By faith. I'm going to show you right from this passage. I'm just going to walk you right through these verses and show you exactly what that looks like. So how do I view trials and opposition by faith in the revealed word of God? Here's what that means. In the long view, in the long view, it means that guaranteed my story will end in heaven. Praise God. That's verse 30. That's verse 30. In the short view, it means by faith that even when it feels like God is against me, God is working all things together for my good, for my spiritual profit, not for a pleasant outcome, but for my spiritual profit. That's the short view. That's verse 28. And I believe those things by faith in the revelation that I serve a God who is in fact for me. That's verse 31. Don't tell me that doctrinal preaching isn't practical, all right? I mean, right out of these verses, saying, hey, I'm building the case that I am, in fact, for you. So if you want me to keep showing you how these doctrinal truths undergird the real life that you're living, would you just raise your hand? No one! I'm going to keep going anyway. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Here's what he's saying. That when I look at the cross, that God was willing to sacrifice everything to meet a need that I have that I could not meet to solve a problem that I could not fix. When I look at the cross, I, I should never, by faith, not that I don't wrestle with it, not that there's not spiritual anxiety or worry in seasons of suffering, that by faith I can look at the cross and say, hey, if God did that on my behalf at a great cost to him, then in the midst of my temporal suffering, I should not doubt that God will meet me where I'm at, that God will comfort me, that God will sustain me when it feels like I cannot move forward in life. The cross is the ultimate answer when the doubts creep and say, will God provide what I need 
when I do not have it within me to fix the situation. That's what he's saying in verse 32. He's saying, hey, God did that very thing in human history. At great cost to himself, for a sin problem you could not fix, he was willing to offer the thing that cost him the most. And so what do we mean when we talk about, listen, I want you to understand something. The gospel is not for lost people. The gospel is something that even the saved people rehearse and preach to ourselves. And so how do I preach the gospel to myself in the midst of life's hardest moments? You know what I say? It feels like that God is not going to sustain me. And then verse 32, he says, hey, if God did this for you, the cross, don't ever doubt that God won't sustain you in the midst of a season of suffering, that God, once and for all, has settled the issue. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself at a great cost to me. Don't doubt my provision in the meantime. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. That's how I can move forward in gospel confidence. Listen, it's not I'm moving forward by faith of this false bravado because I'm so strong and I'm so brave and I'm those kinds of things. No, no, no. He says, listen, it's not that you're not afraid. That's, you don't move forward like I'm not afraid. Listen, there's lots of things I'm afraid when they happen in life. What it is is I'm moving forward by faith in the revealed truth of God's word because I am confident on the revealed truth of scripture that I am deeply loved and provided for. That's how I'm moving forward. Gospel confidence. And the third step of faith in this passage is this. It's the decision to live free because you are. Now, for the sake of time, we can't spend just a moment here, but it's too rich to skip over completely. Look with me at verses 33 and 34. Verse 33 reads and says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's saved people. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed, listen to this, this is incredible. Who indeed is interceding for us? You ever wonder what's going on in heaven sometimes? Yeah, I, I think that most of us, we think that Heaven is basically the multiplication of whatever it is we enjoy on earth, right? Like I had a guy one time, he was a huge NASCAR fan. He's like, I just can't imagine that, that heaven, there's just not some great racing going on. I said, that's not heaven, that's hell, amen? <laughs> Write this down, God hates NASCAR and bluegrass. Write it down. That one guy, he loved to fish. He's like, oh man, I bet there's some good fishing going on in heaven, Right? You know what I'm hoping? That, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to be a little bitter when I get to heaven. If I go there and find out that, in fact, Burger King was good for you, I'm going to be furious, all right? <laughs> I'm going to be mad. I'm just being honest. And so we have this idea that heaven is just basically multiplied whatever it is that we enjoy here on earth. And so this reality is we wonder sometimes, what, in fact, is going on in heaven? What is Jesus doing right now? Like, write those things. And so he's going to walk through that here. But before we get to that, in verse 3, he says this. He says, who shall bring any charge against the saved? Who's going to condemn us? Now, sometimes I've heard this mistaught that you should never bring a word of correction against someone who's saved. You know, listen, the, the Bible dismisses that all over. 
There are multiple verses that speak about correction being needed, admonishment being offered uh, all the time. And the Bible says the, the idea here is that if you and I can't receive correction, listen, the problem isn't with the person offering the correction. It's the problem is with you and I having an unteachable spirit. And that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble is what Scripture says. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is not redemptive correction in verse 33. It's slanderous accusation. And the accusation is this. When your life gets hard, the accusation is this. You're not loved by God, and there's a chance you don't even belong to God. The accusation is you, in fact, have not been justified, and so therefore, you, in fact, will not be glorified. That's what the context of these verses are. Not only are you not glorified, listen, you're condemned. That's what the accusation is. You're getting what you deserve. And so in verse 33, he asks the questions. He's like, who in the world is going to condemn someone that God himself has pardoned? That's what the question is in verse 33. Who would try and condemn someone that God has declared as guilty but pardoned? And so let me just tell you that you need to, Prepare to do battle with the two greatest accusers you will meet in seasons of suffering. The first one is Satan himself. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it gives this description of Satan. It says, he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day. He's constantly in your ear, reminding you of all your past failures. He's magnifying all your present sufferings. The Bible says he's actually going before the throne of God night and day, serving as the accuser of the brethren. They don't love you. They don't belong to you. Remember what he did with Job's life? God said, hey, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him in the whole earth. And what did Satan say? Well, of course he serves you. You pay him well. But touch everything that he has and watch how quickly he will curse you. And instead, Job says, hey, listen, Naked I came from the wood, naked I returned. Blessed be the name of our Lord God, right? And so that's what the accuser does. They don't love you. They don't serve you. Bring up your past. But here's what I want you to understand from these verses. If you are in Christ, then what Romans 8 is teaching is God did not set his affections on some future improved version of you. Praise God. He's not saying there's no condemnation for those who get their act together. He says, no, no, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God has set his affections, not on some future version of me, on the real me. God didn't purchase your freedom at great cost, verse 32, and then regret it later and go, man, I didn't know it was going to turn out that bad, right? No. He doesn't teach any of that. But Satan just all the time accusing the brethren and Jesus is a tangible reminder to God that no matter what Satan accuses with us, he's pleading our case. Look at verse 34. This is fascinating. Look at verse 34. What does it say? Verse 34 says, Is God who justified us, who is condemned? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What's Jesus doing in heaven today? 
That when Satan comes before the throne and says, he doesn't belong to you, he doesn't love you, look at his life, look at his failures, look at all those things, look how quickly he'll turn his back on you. Then every time he's accusing us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and every time God just looks over and goes, hey, all those things may be true, but in fact, what is true is they do belong to me as evidence that the purchase of their salvation is sitting right here at my right hand. It's over, it's finished, the deal is done. That's what he's describing. And so I always wonder, wondered, like, how does that work? Is Jesus sitting over here? I'm going to pretend I'm Billy Joel here for a minute, all right? Or Rascal Flats, whoever leads our worship. And so, like, I feel like the Lord just gave me something right there, amen? Like, Satan comes and accuses me. And it's like Jesus running up again, like, no, 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 they're mine. They belong to me, they belong to me, they belong to me. Oh, oh no, 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 that's mine too, they're mine too. They're like, how does that, like, how does that practically work? Here's what Warren Wearsby said, and he's dead on. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus' presence is his intercession. He's seated, doesn't have to get up again. Why? Because a seated work signifies a completed work. What Jesus is saying is, hey, you can accuse all you want, it's over. It's done. Paid for. But they're guilty. They are, but I pardoned them over. That's what he's saying. That Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf. And so the first accuser is Satan. Hey, listen, I'm going to go over, all right? Just a few minutes. Praise God. This is such good truth, right? You are not getting to church before or lunch before the Methodist. I'm sorry. The second accuser, listen to this, is you. Author Mark Vrograp, pastor, he says, difficult circumstances can assault the soul as you begin to be your own accuser. You hardly need the devil to do this work. Your own knowledge of your shortcomings can easily do the trick. You can easily spiral downward, either highlighting all the reasons why you're being punished or becoming totally overwhelmed because all the ways that you're failing as you struggle through your pain. And so what do you comfort yourself with? Listen, even if I've blown it, it's over. Even if I've blown it, Jesus says, that's fine. I died for people who've blown it. It's over, you're pardoned. And even when you're accusing yourself, Jesus is interceding with his very presence on your behalf. Listen, I hope you leave today wrecked by that truth. I hope no one leaves today and thinks, oh, that was a good sermon. I hope everyone leaves today thinking, Jesus is a great redeemer. That's what everybody should leave today thinking in light of the truths that we're looking at. Pastor Chris is currently training for an Ironman. That's a prayer request. I don't know why he's doing that. 112 miles biking, 2.4 miles swimming, 26.2 miles running. It sounds insane, is it not? But what if I told you that a man with cerebral palsy has finished six of those races? It's true. Rick Hoyt couldn't walk because of his difficulties. So how is that even possible? Well, it's possible because for every mile of every race, his father carried him. 
He would load him up on a raft and swim 2.4 miles with Rick in tow. He'd put him on a special seat and ride 112 miles on the bike. He'd put him in a wheelchair and run the full distance for the marathon. A race that seems insurmountable was finished. Why? Because the work of a loving father. His father did for a son, see if this sounds familiar, his father did for a son what the son could not do for himself, and the son received the benefits while the father made the sacrifice. That's the gospel. And because all those things are true, when life is hard by faith, I can keep moving ahead apart from spiritual anxiety, knowing that whom he justified, he will glorify. By faith, I move ahead knowing that God is for us, despite when it feels like everything is against us. And by faith, we move forward when we're too weak to hold on to God, knowing that in those times, he, in fact, is holding tightly to me. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you two questions this morning. Number one, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? You're either trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf or you're trusting in your own ability. You're the trusting in the truth that God, in fact, is holding on to you or you're trusting in the fact that somehow, in a fallen world, you can hold on to God. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or you're unsure if you have, right now, would you pray and would you acknowledge before a holy God, would you confess and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Compared to the standard of Jesus Christ, I fall short and I confess that sin today. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day to forgive my sins. And so today, I repent of my sins, I have a desire to turn from them, and I embrace Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ today for your salvation? Many of you in the room are already saved, and some of you I know your story, your testimony. But here's what else I know that true followers of Jesus Christ can battle tremendous spiritual anxiety. True followers of Jesus Christ can wonder how in the world is all this suffering working for my good. True followers of Jesus Christ will go through seasons where it feels like I cannot even hold on to God and need to be comforted by the truth that God in fact is holding on to me. If that describes you this morning, and I can just pray that the Lord would encourage you and remind you of those truths this week in the real life that you're living and all the situations you'll encounter. If I could just pray for you as your pastor, would you say, hey, that's me. I'm, I'm wrestling with all those things. And by faith, I wanna live in the truth of who God has revealed he is, even when it doesn't always feel true. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Can I, would you just lift your hand up and say, hey, that's me. Pray for me this week. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you this week. Father, I pray that this week, that as we come into situations that feels like the whole world is set against us, that God, we would focus our eyes on the cross once more and preach the gospel to ourselves and realize that you, in 
fact declared once and for all at Calvary that you are for us. And if you're willing to sacrifice your own son to prove that, then God, by faith, we proclaim that you will not abandon us and you will sustain us on this side of heaven. God, by faith, may we live this week, no matter what we encounter, that when life is so hard that it feels like we can't even hold on to God, that God, by faith, we declare and move forward that you, in fact, are holding on to us. And God, by faith, when we are so distraught, we don't even know how to approach heaven. By faith, Lord, may we live with the truth that even now, Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And so God, in a world that is scary and hard, help us to live by faith this week and anchor our lives to what you've revealed is true about you, especially when it doesn't feel true. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.